Animism Radio explores our connection to the plant, animal, mineral, human, and spiritual realms to help you live in divine relationship with all that is. Where do you stand? If you want to live in relationship with people and everything else, as we do in animism, you have to know where you stand. Relationships are spatial. If this doesn't make sense to you, stay tuned. By the end of this podcast, it will, and you will know where you habitually stand. And if you need to make some changes, you'll know what changes to make to relate more effectively. But before we do anything, let's give gratitude and get grounded right here together. So let's take a deep breath, get heart-centered, and move into a space of thanksgiving. To the earth below, thank you for our foundation, stability, shelter, beauty, home, and food. We're moving into a time of scarcity with winter, so please help us to remember the abundance that renews with spring. To the air above, thank you for the oxygen that keeps us alive, for detachment, discernment, dreams, inspiration, and clear communication. To the fire that destroys, fuels our passions, purifies, transforms, and warms us, I give thanks. And to the water that gives life, hydrates, gives us our emotions, and helps us to connect with spirit and the ancestors, I thank you. To the human, plant, animal, and mineral ancestors, I send gratitude for all that you do that is seen and unseen. Please help us to see what is hidden so that we may also acknowledge that. Thank you to the elders who guide the way forward and help us to walk through life. Thank you to all our listeners around the world. If we inspire, teach, humor you, or give you anything of value, please consider returning the love by sharing our podcast and sharing the love. So thank you in advance for that. Have you seen the movie Far From the Maddening Crowd? It's based on the Thomas Hardy classic of the same name. It helps to be familiar with the story, but you don't have to know it to follow along today because you're going to be able to relate to the characters regardless. If you've read the novel, know that the book is different, and I'm going to follow the movie version that stars Carrie Mulligan. And if you haven't seen the movie and want to, do that and come back because there are spoilers in this podcast. So Far From the Maddening Crowd is a relationship movie that revolves around a beautiful young female that three men all fall in love with. She's young, so she's immature and still finding her way, so she's somewhat all over the place. She's flawed for sure, proud impulsive, a free spirit, but a good person at heart. And there are many places that a person can stand. So imagine a whiteboard with a dot in the center. So that dot is you, or in the case of the movie, that's going to be Bathsheba, the main character. Now, if we place a dot above, that represents anyone who stands above or is on top of you. The dot below is the person who supports you or stands below. The dot to the right is who's right beside you. The dot in front of that one is the person who's out in front, so leader, trailblazer. The dot to the left is the one who is left or left behind. The one who's back beyond that is definitely the one who's left behind. So I know that went fast, but we're going to return to this again, so there'll be some review, okay? So the main idea is that we have to stand somewhere in order to be in relationship with someone or something. Where we stand influences our status and the role in that relationship. We don't have any standing with someone. We have no relationship. And there's no good or bad place to stand. Each one has its advantages and disadvantages. And some of them are effective at certain times. And So we don't just stand in one place. 
We can move depending upon the circumstances, but we have one place where we are most comfortable. Got it? Now, at the beginning of the movie, our protagonist, Bathsheba Everdeen, has a pretty low social standing. She's an orphan. She has no money, but she has beauty and an education, so she brings something to the table. Her personal standing tends to be out in front because she's a free spirit. She doesn't bow to social conventions or do the done thing necessarily. She, so she thinks for herself. So when her neighbor, Mr. Oak, asks to marry her, nobody expects her to refuse. It just isn't a done thing. It's a great offer. He's far above her socially, and a girl in her social position doesn't know if she's ever going to get another offer, much less a better one. Uh, but she's young. And she doesn't even know herself yet. And she doesn't want to get married. He's far above her socially. And a girl in her social position doesn't know if she'll ever get another offer, much less a better one. But she's young and she doesn't even know herself yet. And she doesn't want to get married to anyone or even think about a relationship or responsibility yet. Even though that's kind of unheard of for the day, that's her. That's how she rolls. Bathsheba inherits her uncle's farm and takes over as its mistress. So another thing that's unheard of. And this shows her standing as being on top of things. She's not only responsible for her own livelihood, but those of her workers. She sells her own wheat and takes care of her own finances. So she's running things. So where we stand isn't just about where we are with people, but with things like money, our body, our property. So we have standing with everything. And I say over and over, how you do anything is how you do everything. So if you're not sure where you stand, look at how you relate to your stuff the land, time, or anything else to get a clue. Everything is related to everything else. So back to our story, Bathsheba is proud. This is another thing that keeps her on top of things. When Mr. Oak chastises her for her behavior, it hurts her pride. And she responds by firing him as her shepherd. So how does this indicate that she's on top? Well, if you look down on people, you have to be on top, don't you? Yeah. She dominated him and used her position to put him down. And you can only do that if you have the upper hand or take the upper hand. And that's another way that you can gain the upper hand. This is where we get the saying, I'll put you in your place, because that's exactly what happened. But she's flexible. I'm not sure what uh, they were doing with the sheep, but they were driving them through the water. And uh, Mr. Oak said that she wouldn't get down there with them and help. So what'd she do? She scrambled right down with the rest of them. Now, since she's usually on top, she had to come down, right? Come down off of what? Her high horse. (laughs) So in our society, we don't want to come down once we're up there. It's seen as a failure um, or a loss of status. So most people don't do it, even if it's very lonely at the top. Are you starting to see the metaphors and idioms? We see our reality in our language, right? Our language illuminates our inner reality. Yeah. So when you're at the top and number one, there isn't a lot of room up there on your pedestal usually. So you're often alone. You're on the edge. You're looking down on people, which creates separation and that feeling of loneliness. So lots of us spend a lot of time clawing our way up there only to not like it when we get there. Anyway, back to Bathsheba. So once she's in the water with everyone else, she's beside her workers. So her position changes. She's one with them. They gain respect for her because she shows that she's not above hard work. She works beside them in the field too. She eats with them, at least sometimes. So she's versatile. She changes her position as situations change. And sometimes people do this because they don't know where they stand. 
so they're all over the place, or they wait until someone else tells them where to stand. Bathsheba's not doing this. She's adapting, which is healthy and effective. Now look at, um, now let's look at Mr. Boldwood. So Mr. Boldwood is the richest guy in the area. So he's got the most social status and that puts him at the top or in front. And when he falls for Bathsheba, he puts her on a pedestal, which actually moves him down below in the support position. She's above him in their relationship, but not in the social order because he has more money. When someone is on a pedestal, we don't have a flesh and blood real relationship with them. They're more of an object of desire than a real person. Real people are flawed. So when we go after the fairy tale romance of living happily ever after or giving someone the title of being a soulmate or twin flame, we're feeding the fantasy that puts them and the relationship on the pedestal. We're giving them impossible standards that they can never meet. So we either go through life with a plastic relationship or we're doomed to disappointment. With everything Mr. Boldwood does, he puts Bathsheba on top. He idolizes her. He thought she was contemplating his proposal when she married Sergeant Troy, but he defended her. He said that she never promised him anything. Later in the movie, Mr. Boldwood kills Bathsheba's husband in a fit of passion. And the whole time, in his eyes, she's a princess in need of his protection. She's always a doll, a possession, not a real person. He doesn't see that she loves being independent and running her own farm. He offers to let her keep it as a hobby, as if they were to marry. He just doesn't get it at all. He wants to make her dependent where he can take care of her, and she's not having it at all. That's just not who she even is. And this is probably one of the things that makes her hesitate to marry him. She probably likes that he puts her on a pedestal because she likes being on top. But she probably intuits that it's a cage and she's really going to be under his thumb if she agrees to a marriage. And she doesn't want to be a kept woman. She doesn't have to be. She has choices. So let's look at the man she does marry to enter Francis Troy. Frank literally bumps into Bathsheba in the dark. And when he holds the lamp to her face, he sees that she's a beautiful thing and he decides he wants it. She's a possession that he wants to have. So he's another one who relates to her as an object, not a human or a woman. But she doesn't see it. Where Mr. Boldwood takes a respectful distance, Sergeant Troy does not. He pours it on strong and love bombs her. And Bathsheba is giddy with the attention and danger. You know who wouldn't be? When Sergeant Troy tells her of another girl, Bathsheba is wild with jealousy and impulsively marries him. Now, their social standing is a bit tricky because I don't understand the conventions of the day. But Sergeant Troy is in the militia. And Bathsheba is a landowner, so I'm pretty sure she's above him. She definitely has more money than he does, but he's thinking that he's married a cash cow, and it's not like that. The farm is struggling to get on its feet, and there isn't a lot to spare. When Frank figures that out, he gets ugly and bored. Instead of idolizing Bathsheba, he devalues her and considers her beneath his feet. In other words, Frank's a narcissist. He's good-looking, charming, proud, and impulsive just like her. But Bathsheba's excuse was her youth. And this is just how Frank is. He was at the farm to begin with because he was looking for the girl that he dumped. They were supposed to get married, but she went to the wrong church. He was so furious for being embarrassed like that that he abandoned her. When he went back to her because he also likes being on a pedestal and needs someone to adore him, um, he found Bathsheba. And Bathsheba was willing to do that. Um, when he was charming, but once she caught on that he wasn't going to work 
or contribute anything to their lives. He was just going to take. She couldn't keep him on a pedestal. She was so she was willing to see him as a real person and relate to him as a real person. He was not. If one person needs to be adored and the other one isn't willing to do that, that relationship is doomed to failure. There's no connection. Well, there isn't anyway because you can't relate to somebody on a pedestal. But it's also true that it's incredibly difficult for two people to occupy the same pedestal because one has to be the worshiper beneath the other. And this is why Frank, who was with the farm girl before he was with Bathsheba, was with her. He was socially superior to her, so... Why would he have to look for somebody beneath him in status? It's because she's lower and she was more likely to worship him and keep him on that pedestal that he loved. And Frank was all about him. He was about what would make him happy and feel important in the moment. And the second that was gone, he was looking for someone else to supply him with that feeling. So he didn't stand beside anyone, didn't support anyone, didn't lead anyone, didn't really have any relationships with anyone. He related to the world as objects who could please him. And when they were no longer doing that, he went to look for another object. This is a really fascinating character to get to know because we all have Frank Torres in our lives. If you're a normal, caring person, you want to believe that the charm and the good times are real, but they're not. There's no relationship, so they can't be. And when you know that, you can stop giving your energy to someone who can't return it. All right, our final character is Mr. Oak. He is an oak. He's the most grounded, real person in the whole story. He's a self-made man with skills that he's developed from using them over and over. He's the best shepherd around and was on his way to being a lot more than he was at birth when his um, shepherd puppy drove the sheep over the cliff and bankrupted him. That's how he ended up working for Bathsheba because he was independent at the beginning of the story. So Mr. Oak treats everybody with respect. He stands beside everyone and sees them all as equals. And when he proposed to Bathsheba, he was socially above her, but still saw her as an equal. When he lost everything, socially she became out of his league, so although he still loved her, he kept his distance. Mr. Boldwood was his rival, but he treated him with respect and kindness too. He treated Bathsheba as if she knew her own mind and didn't meddle in her dealings with either Mr. Boldwood or Sergeant Troy. He knew who he was, and he stood his ground regardless of the social convention. When Bathsheba fired him and then wanted him back again when her sheep were dying, he stood his ground. He knew his worth. He made her ask him nicely. He wasn't going to rub her face in it, but he let her know that she wasn't going to bully him or abuse him either. So he wasn't being petty like she was, but he wasn't going to tolerate her stuff either. When Bathsheba said she wasn't interested in Mr. Oak because her pride was hurt, he trusted that she knew her own mind and respected her boundaries. He still loved her, but he wasn't going to chase her or force his attention on her, and this is what kept them from being together before they did because of her pride and his boundaries. And as she matured and spent more time in real relationships working alongside people, she realized that it was better to be an equal than to be above them. She wanted to be a partner with Mr. Oak, And when he forced her hand by leaving, she wasn't about to come down too far and ask him to marry her, but she did ask him to ask her again. So Mr. Oak was the only sovereign one in the whole story, the only one with healthy boundaries. And he was sure who he was, where he stood, even when social conventions said that he was below others. So he was adaptable too. He was called upon to lead and he led. And when he had to follow, he followed. When it was effective to support, he supported. He didn't let Bathsheba or anyone else put him in his place, even when they were 
dominating him because he knew where he stood. Are you starting to see? Um, it's it's an interaction. It's it's relationship. And this is the most effective way to use our position because there are two realities, the social one and the inner one. We don't have control over the social one, but we have total control over the inner one. What I mean is I may not be the boss at work. I may have to do what I'm told and support others who are not as competent, but I don't have to take that personally or let that touch my soul. As long as I'm a sovereign and know that I stand at the center of my universe, I'm good. Everybody can't be a leader. Leading is hard, but in our society, we're all pushed to be at the top or out in front. And if you don't stand there, you're nobody. We've really got to reevaluate that because that's not how nature does it. I have dogs. And when I got my first dog, he had to be the alpha because he was the only one. But he's not an alpha at heart. And when my second dog came along, he gave up that position without a fight when she was just a puppy because he was just not cut out for it. There's nothing worse than being led by someone who is incompetent. Nature knows this. There is no popularity contest. It's all about who's strongest and most capable, and dogs know that. When I got my third dog, they almost fought to the death. Uh, it's that important to establish the, the correct pecking order. Everyone is calm when they know where they stand. Some of us support. Some of us lead. Some follow. Some stand aside. It creates order when we all work according to our skills and talents. If you look at a pyramid, it's all the bricks at the bottom that make the whole structure possible and stable. So there's no shame in being at the bottom or being the support person. Most of us are followers. We don't want to think. We want to be told what to do. And that's okay when you're working with others. You just don't want to abdicate the choices for your own life. You've got to be the master of your own life. Another thing to consider um, is that a leader can lead from any position. It doesn't have to be from the top or out in front. It doesn't have to be from up high where everyone can see you. Lelza said, a leader is best when people barely know he exists. When the work is done, his aim fulfilled, they will say we did it ourselves. Mr. Oak is that type of leader. He didn't care about who saw what he did or if they appreciated it. He didn't care about credit. He wasn't jealous and thinking about what other people were doing. He was just living his life with trust in himself and the process. I like him. He's earthy in every way. Solid, stable, predictable, tenacious, dependable, but also sensuous and beautiful. When he comes on screen, it's like, you know, calm and natural. So how do people find their place? It starts in childhood. Usually the oldest child is a leader, and they have to be because there's no one to follow. They have to figure things out for themselves. They tend to be responsible, self-assured, confident, and independent. They often have their parents all to themselves, so they're used to positive feedback or attention, and they learn how to seek approval. Another thing that can influence where we stand is how well we were parented. Lots of adults weren't parented well and don't know how to do it, so the kids grow up without guidance. And this can also happen if the parents have addiction or mental illness or just aren't present because they're working. Somebody has to lead, so a child may take it upon themselves. When you see kids who talk back to their parents, bully their parents, call them names, or don't do what they're told, this is often because the parents are not firm, fair, or consistent in the child rearing and their discipline. If no means maybe, and yes means maybe, then life is uncertain, 
and the child really can't rely on anything but themselves. So they take over and make the best of things. When we find a comfortable place to stand as children, we tend to stay there. So if we're the one that's left behind, we will play that role as adults too. If we're the supportive one, we can tend to find partners and friends who need support. It gives us something to do. If we're the ones who look down on others, we find people who don't mind being looked down upon. When we grow out of all those old roles and start to become like Mr. Oak, we can look like a lot of people. The system seeks homeostasis. Even a dysfunctional system is a stable system and a predictable one. And if I'm used to chaos, normal and chill may feel weird and uncomfortable. So I don't want to be there. And I'm going to look for someone who relates to the world as I do. So growing can be scary. The cost can be more than some people want to bear. A few weeks back, I posted a podcast on relating to the world as objects. And some of us are comfortable with that. So some of us like being uh, Mr. Choi. And when someone shows up who relates to us as a person, this can be weird and uncomfortable. Oh, I guess I should talk about what that's like. So there is another position. It's within. So all these dots I talked about in the beginning, the within dot is the one that you can't see because it's within your dot. Going back to how language illuminates the inner world, back in the day, people used to talk about lovemaking by saying, I was with her. I want to be with her or be with you. So think about the meaning of that. It's not in front, beside, behind, or beneath. It's occupying the same space as you. It's the most intimate place to stand. There's no separation. And I don't think you can be with someone who's not sovereign because they have to be with themselves before they can be with you. I don't have a lot of social outlets since COVID, but I recently spent some time with two animists who are people who know how to do this. These types of people are my favorite people because the experience of sharing the same space is so holistic. It's heavy with meaning and intimate, and I don't mean sexually. Silence doesn't have to be filled. Words are not just intellectual ideas. They're emotional. They're spiritual, and they speak a whole world into a single, single word. It's more than communicating. It's being with someone. I'm still me. I'm still intact, but every part of me is open and sharing, and theirs is too. This is rare because they have to be willing. You have to be willing and both people have to know how. Now, there's a lot of people who will want to put you in your place. And if you don't have any standing with yourself, you'll go where they put you. And usually that's in a place of little power. If you wait to see what everyone else feels or wants before you know, you might be one of those people. Then there are some people who aren't going to connect with you no matter what. Either they can't or don't want to. I think um, of two instances where I worked with somebody like this, and, and both were the same. I would say something and they'd speak back, but there was no follow-up in the real world like what I said landed. So I changed these tactics. Do you want me to lead, follow, support? No matter where I moved, it didn't matter. There's no change. It was completely like I was an object and they were projecting thoughts at me versus two human beings trying to accomplish something. So no judgment. It is what it is. But I gave up trying when I saw that it just wasn't going to make a difference. There was just no connection. And this can happen in romantic relationships, too. There are lots of people who don't want to connect. Relationships are scary. Depending upon people when people let you down is scary. Vulnerability is frightening. So they don't put labels on relationships. They treat relationships as a way to get their needs met. You give me this, I give you that. Or I just take what I want. 
And if you try to support someone, lead someone, follow someone, or stand beside someone who doesn't respond no matter what you do, you have no standing with that person and no relationship. I'm just putting this out there so that you don't waste your time. If you're with someone in a romantic relationship or a personal one who puts you in your place, either with insults, domination, passive-aggressive actions, ignoring you, withholding information or affection, sulking, blaming, complaining, or other tactics, they're giving you the boundaries of the relationship. Listen, if you like that place and you can relate to that person from there and you want that, go for it. If you don't want to be in that place, you have to ask yourself if you want the relationship or even if you have a relationship. If you know anything about dysfunctional relationships, this is what happens all the time. There's a victim who has little power and a hero, or we can call this the princess and the hero. The princess loves to be taken care of and doted on. The hero loves being adored for being a hero. And until the victim feels stifled by having no power and no decision making, or the hero gets tired of carrying all the load by himself all the time, and then things kind of blow up. Then the disgruntled one becomes the oppressor. If it's the hero, he might say something like, why do I have to do everything? Aren't you ever going to take the initiative? Aren't you ever going to give something back? If it's the princess, she might say something like, I never get to make my own choices. When is it my turn? Then the one who's being attacked takes on the victim role with something like, after I all I do for you, this is how you treat me? Which sends everybody back into their original places with something like, oh, baby, I'm so sorry. You know how much I love you. And it just goes right back to where it was. So these roles are self-sustaining. We can think we're changing places when we really aren't. Clearly, this is important as humans, but it's also important in the rest of our relationships. If we relate to the world as an object, then I act on things. I can take from the landscape without regard for how it impacts the land. I can treat my dogs as if he's there for my entertainment and not think about his needs. I can treat my kids that way too. Maybe they're trophies that make me look good and give me bragging rights when I have no idea who they are or what they want. If I have to be out in front and lead people, then I need followers. Social media is set up to perpetuate this. Our value comes from how many followers we have. Frankly, I don't want followers. I prefer to be with sovereign people who have something to add to the conversation, who are not looking to be told what to think or to do. That's exhausting, you know? Or, you know, or people who want me to perform or entertain them. So let's do this life together, y'all, you know? Being a leader may make me think that I know what's best for my landscape too. So there's lots of innovations that are supposed to improve upon nature. But when you zoom out and look at the big picture, maybe it's not so true. For example, I love the idea of solar power, but it's dirty electricity. So is it really clean and healthy? There are lots of unintended consequences that can happen when we think we're smarter than nature. Relationships are the way that we live. It's really hard to go through life without engaging in relationships. And knowing where you stand is a good place to begin to do that in a conscious, effective way. I love movies. Watching how characters relate is a good way to learn because it's often easier for us to see what's going on with others than ourselves. So there's a little distance. So I recommend watching Far From The Maddening Crowd if you haven't seen it yet and seeing if you see what I see. See what you think is different. And then apply it to your life to see what you see there. So, you know, what needs to change? What do you like? What does this tell you about your family? I bet you there's a ton to discover there. So thanks for listening, guys. I'm Laura Giles for Pan Society. 
That's all for this week. Be sure to check out the podcast on Relating as Objects if you haven't caught that one yet. Ciao. Thank you.